I'm going to say something kind of controversial from the start here. Um, dog owners no longer seem to be in charge. Like who owns who, right? According to an article in Money Magazine, the lifetime cost um, averages to about $15,000 for a dog. 15K, which that seems reasonable. Small dogs live about 15 years. That starts to pencil. Medium dogs, 13. Large dogs, 10 years. Forbes magazine puts the cost of ownership um, somewhere between 17000 and 93000 depending on the size and breed and services required. Okay, but you could say it's totally worth it, and I will not disagree with your calculations. They're your personal calculations, I get it. But you know this, and your dog knows this. Something is wrong with the picture when a man or a woman sticks their hand in a bag, and picks up, scoops up after their dog. Something is wrong. Even the dog, I, the times I see it, the dog's looking going, something's not right about this, right? But we often get things backwards in life, okay? And dog owners, don't be mad. It's, I'm totally fine with that. But but we, we do things, get other things backward in life. God claims a people for his possession, like you're mine. And he says something like, I am your God. And people end up with somehow thinking that God is their possession. No, God says, God says, you are my possession. And then we end up thinking that God is our possession. Like all the other trinkets and baubles and delights, God is there for us when we need him. We'll just take him off the shelf. Yikes. You know, in this passage we've been looking at, I'm going to come back into it again in Acts chapter 7. If you just want to pick up at Acts 7, 41. Stephen is making a, an accusation. He's, he's actually responding to accusations with other accusations. He's telling the story of God through a lens that maybe they weren't paying attention to. He's talked about the Moses situation, and he claims um, that he's actually been more faithful to Moses than they have. So don't call me a heretic. Don't say I'm blaspheming because somehow I've gotten off the Moses bus. No, we've we've fulfilled him to the T. But in regards to the claim about the temple, you've been trash-talking the temple, or you proclaim Jesus who said he's going to destroy the temple. He actually owns this one a bit more. He starts declaring in, in Acts 7.41, they made a calf in those days, the, the Israelites, and they offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God gave them away, turned them over, gave them over to the worship of the host of heavens, all the, the other gods. The gods that were in charge of all the other nations are now being worshipped by them, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And so here he quotes Amos, who Amos was... Um, a fig farmer. He's sent to the northern tribes of Israel to warn them about the coming exile. If they don't get their act together, God is going to send them to, to the gods that they want to worship. We looked at that last week. You want these gods? Okay, well then you can worship them. You can actually go live in their land. So he's warned them about it. calls them to turn back to faithful, loyal worship of Yahweh alone. In the book of Amos, he starts with speeches telling them about how the enemies of God are going to get what they have coming to them. They're going to get it. And the crowd's getting excited. Yes, God will bring his vengeance. The day of the Lord. Yes, the day of reckoning. Yahweh will judge. 
He'll sit on his throne and he'll judge in our favor, right? Amos 5.25 is the passage quoted, but let's go back up to to, to verse 18. Because he addresses this. You want justice? You want justice? You want the day of the Lord? You can't handle the day of the Lord. You want truth? You want justice? You can't handle justice. Amos 5.18 says, uh, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and, and not light and, and gloom with no brightness in it? He's saying you, you want judgment. Yes, judge for us. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. I will not judge for you. I'm going to judge against you. Verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. What's he saying? They've come to the temple. They've come to the feast. They're, they're here to worship him right even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings i will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals i i will not look upon them take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps i will not listen but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness o house of israel you're going to take up your gods, Molech or Sikuth, Kiyun, Rafan, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. So that's up north and around in Syria and beyond. Says the Lord, whose name is the God of armies. So in the scene that, that Stephen is quoting, Yahweh is on the throne, and he's judging the nations, including Israel. And they're found to be idolaters, mixing the worship of Yahweh with other gods. So go take your gods, have your gods. And how does, how does God feel about that? What is his response to mixed worship? A little bit of God. Oh, yeah, I'll take a little bit of that. Um, a little bit of, oh, yeah, this. How's he think about that? Well, then and now. Old Testament, New Testament. Hebrew scriptures, Greek New Testament scriptures. He requires believing loyalty. Say that with me. Believing loyalty. Now look at someone next to you and say, God requires believing loyalty. Go ahead and say it. God requires believing loyalty. That's what saving faith is. Now Israel has a history of breaking faith, betraying Yahweh, and he says he's going to remove his presence from them. Amos isn't the only prophet to discuss this. Ezekiel is another prophet. He got picked up by his hair in a vision and, and taken to see the people of, of Yahweh, how they have abandoned their worship of Yahweh, even though they're spending lots of time in the temple. Oh, they're spending lots of time in the temple. He, Ezekiel is taken in a vision and God says, I want to show you what they're doing in the temple. So don't just tell me, oh, we've got the temple, everything's fine. God's our possession. Yeah, everything's good. <laughs> Read this with me and weep. Literally, uh, it's, the response is to mourn. Uh, so 
But let's not be so hard on Israel because remember, this is a story about us as well. So in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, Ezekiel says, I stand, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. This is Ezekiel chapter 8. The hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. So uh, a, a vision of some ex extremely bright and beautiful person. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. So they're in the inner court at the gateway, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, an idol, an icon that produces jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. And like the vision I had saw in the valley, he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So he looks to the north, and behold, the north altar of the gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy, uh, an idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. And so I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see what vile abominations they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. These guys are in charge. With Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of the incense went up among them. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house are doing? In the dark, each in his room of pictures. <laughs> These idol images that are engraved on the walls. For they say, Yahweh doesn't see us. Yahweh has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will see greater abominations that they commit. And he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, a fertility god. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Oh, you'll see greater abominations than these. And he brought me in the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, the entrance of the temple of the Lord. Between the porch and the altar were about, seven, about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord. No, we're supposed to be facing the temple, right? No, their backs are to the temple of the Lord. And their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still to further anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. They can't hide. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. <laughs> what kind of story are we in? Well, we're in a story where God has a people, and he requires them 
to have believing loyalty, to stick with him, to be faithful to him and him alone. And if not, then there's judgment. This being cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city. So the executioners are brought out and they're ready for slaughter and they, they go in to the temple area. And now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. So from, from the zone in the, on the ark where the cherub are, he has risen and has come out to the threshold. And he calls out to these men. Um, they all have a writing case at their waist. And they are going to pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So we've got God taking his worship very seriously. It, he takes the temple more seriously than they do. He says, this is, this is uh, my temple, the space carved out for my name, and you've put all these other names in there. I mean, there's some immediate application points for us. I don't know if you, you got that. If you've been hiding at the, in the dark worshiping pictures, <laughs> or you've been anxious over the loss of security that your wealth had brought. Okay, I, have, I had all this, but now, now it's slipping away. Or you've kept your back to the sanctuary of God so that you could pursue other things. It's time to repent, be marked out as those who are loyal to Yahweh. To, to groan over these things, to repent and weep. Oh, I can't believe that's my heart. God, you are right there. Your presence is right there. And I've treated you like this. All right, that's a moment for each one of us. And we need to live in that, that repentance. Because Yahweh is present among us. His spirit is here, even now, calling you to believing loyalty. He wants to rescue you from the collapse that is coming because we've gone after all these other gods. The gods that will fail you in the day of the Lord. Who's going to stand for you then? In Acts 7, 44, it goes on. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with them when, when, with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it wasn't until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by man, as the prophet says, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 66 here. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So is it really the temple location that matters? Is it really the functions of religion that will save you? No, it's Yahweh who saves and he looks on those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. Who, as we looked at last week, who keep his word. You know, sometimes we think that God can be contained and then available whenever we need him. He's our possession, right? Or he's like, he's like canned food, which is 
good. You, we know long after the expiration date on the shelf, right? <laughs> Just waiting and, and waiting for us. Or maybe he's like that, that Visa debit gift card that you got like eight Christmases ago and you still can't figure out how to use it and get the balance just right. In fact, is there still a balance left? But, you know, it's just nice to know that you have it if you need it. It's just nice, God, that you're there when I need you. That's that's really what I need. I want you to think with me about how you have tried to contain God. It was easy for me to come up with my own list. Okay, God, I'll meet you at church if you promise to stay there when I leave. You know, I'll, I'll see you next week uh, or next month. Okay, okay, I'll see you at Christmas. Or maybe if I keep my Bible closed, um, that maybe I won't feel convicted. Because, you know, really keeping his word and, and exploring the word like we looked at last week, that, that brings a lot of conviction. And uh, it might just be easier to keep that one closed. I'll just keep God on the shelf. If I take a break from talking to God when I really mess up, then he'll just kind of stay out there, right? How many of you have waited until you clean up your act and have a better track record before you come back to God? But God cannot be contained, and his presence is among us even now. And so just ask yourself, do you hide from the one who is your hiding place? I think sometimes we take shelter from the one who is our shelter. And Stephen critiques them hardcore, but his critiques took place after Jesus' critique, right? Which was in line with the prophets. Jesus comes into a house and to the house of prayer and sees that it's a, it's a den of thieves and robbers. He says, you've corrupted it. He says in Matthew 23 that, that he's leaving this house to you desolate, emptied out of the glory of God. The glory of God has departed the temple. What happens when the temple is not the temple of Yahweh? Well, it's not the temple anymore, is it? The temple is now walking out of the temple. Elvis has left the building, right? The temple has left the temple. Jesus himself is the temple. You should follow him out of there because the glory of God has departed the temple. In fact, the glory of God, the temple itself, was taken outside the city gates and murdered. Stephen says it here in Acts chapter 7, 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Oh, may that not be said of us. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Fascinating. The law delivered by angels. The covenant was given by the visible Yahweh, you know, written with his fingers. The word. The angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh, in the presence of the divine council, the spiritual beings. So we have a throne room scene where Moses gets the pattern of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. The throne where the ancient of days is seated to judge the nations. And he says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But surprise, surprise, look who's on the throne. Look who's on the throne. The righteous one. Jesus, the one who was betrayed and murdered, has been exalted. And Stephen says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, radiating God's glory. Look, follow on in verse 54. 
Now, when these things, when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Tom Wright says there's a, there's a heavenly court suddenly superimposed over the earthly one, right? The, the, it's not like, oh, he sees this, this glimpse of, of a far-off galaxy or something like that. No, 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 that's not the point. He says right there in the middle of a judgment scene is the judge, the judge of all. Right there in the middle of it. And well, how important is that to realize that, that in the midst of all of our judgments, there is a God who judges sitting very close, you know, this other dimension in God's space. So another judgment scene superimposed over the earthly one. Tom goes on to say, instead of the high priest and his fellow judges, there was a scene that we find like in Daniel chapter seven with the ancient of days, the God of glory himself sitting in judgment and with the son of man, not as in Daniel, where coming towards him to be seated, but standing before him already to act as an advocate in the court. The human judges might be stoning and condemning Stephen to death, but the heavenly court was finding in his favor. Now, I want to talk about the temple temptation as we close. There is a temptation to look to the temple. Well, we got the temple. God must be with us, right? Look, the temple's right there. Jeremiah chapter 7, you could look at verses 4 and 14. Uh, they would look to the temple, the temple, the temple. We're fine. God's fine. I mean, the temple's still standing. We're good, right? God says, I'm, I'm going to leave that, and you're going to be left um, desolate. The glory of God will have departed. Yeah, we sometimes see God as our possession, but you know, we're God's possession. We need to respond accordingly. We don't look to the temple. We look to him and him alone. And we have to ask the questions that Israel needed to ask. Is it really the land that brings the God, God's blessing, the blessing of, or is it the Lord himself? Because you can have the land and not have the Lord. You, you can have the land of Israel. The secular state of Israel has the land of Israel, but do they have the Lord? And do we want for them to have the Lord? Do we say, oh God, I wish your people would turn to you, right? That's, that's Pray for Israel, yes. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would just pour out his love for them, that they would realize they, they don't just need the land, they need the Lord. But we, we, got, we want God to be located, available, but also leavable. There when you need him, <laughs> patient when you don't need him. But I just want you to think about this. Is that what you were saved for? Were you just saved for the future? Are you saved for later or saved for the present? You know, in our house, we like to throw parties, uh, birthday parties, uh, etc. And when that's coming up, you know, usually it's a Costco run that starts to fill the house with all sorts of good stuff, right? Snacks and desserts and, and, and all sorts of good food. And a, a general announcement goes out throughout the kingdom. Don't touch this. It's for a special occasion. It's saved for later. Many of us grew up waiting for heaven. He got saved, immediately started waiting for heaven. Hmm. We were saved for the future. Uh, say, but, but really, are you only saved for later? Heaven's too good to be enjoyed now, we think. It's just, it's just, something, it's just something there. 
Just like we keep God on a shelf, we also keep our eternal lives on the shelf, saved for later. (laughs) Taste and see that the Lord is good. The goal of our salvation right now is, is, is to develop intimacy with the Trinity that starts now and goes throughout eternity. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says Psalm 34, 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I want to encourage you, don't be the one who saves God for later, who fearfully keeps a distance from him, a person who wants shelter from the God who is our shelter. See, the temple has left the temple. The Spirit is among us, and we are the temple space of God. Intimacy with the Trinity is available now to develop, but also for later. You weren't just saved for later. You're saved for now. Dig in. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus' body, the temple, as he described it, was killed, but then resurrected. The church is now the temple that cannot be destroyed. Let us be those who lean in and taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Lord is present right now, not on a shelf for later.